Hello, and welcome to another episode of Screen Bites, our thought leader series where we learn from industry experts about the latest trends and challenges from across the conversion TV space. I'm your host, Michael Beach. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Screen Bites. Uh, today, it's my pleasure to welcome Anna Milosevic uh, to the show. Anna is the principal and co-founder of Sparrow Advisors. Um, Anna has a you know, deep, extraordinary background in, in the advertising MarTech space. And also, one thing that we'll link to at the edition, she puts out a, an excellent weekly newsletter uh, where they take a deep dive on you know, one or more topics every week, and it's definitely a must-read for, for our team. So, Anna, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, kind of first question we ask everybody, um, you know, the little icebreaker here is, you know, what was your first job and kind of what lessons did you take away for, to pre- prepare for your career? Ooh, uh, this is a, a very U.S.-centric uh, question. So I grew up in Europe where first jobs can kind of be hit or miss or really come much later in life. And I feel incredibly fortunate that I kind of lucked into my first job that ended up being almost perfect. So when I was still in high school, I uh, worked as a translator for the National Television Service. And it's about as, as glamorous as it sounds. <laughs> and so you would you know, type up translations on your computer if you had one, which I did. Many of my colleagues were still using typewriters at the time. Uh, and then you'd go to the studio and queue them up on this machine that then imprints the actual subtitle uh, on, the, on the live broadcast or the recorded broadcast. And you kind of hit enter a lot, uh, you know, a lot, making sure you're queuing up the right translation to whatever, whatever is actually happening on the screen. Uh, and it just gave me a, a really, uh, really detailed appreciation of all the work that happens behind the scenes uh, to you know, have a TV show go live or, or be broadcast. And uh, really all the things that need to come together for a video program to hit the air. Uh, and I got to spend a ton of time in like control rooms and play with equipment that uh, normally you wouldn't really have access to. So that was a, a really, really cool experience and one I really cherish to this day. That's excellent. That's uh, actually one of the rare ones that ties directly to, uh, uh, to the space today, so. Yes, it, uh, you know, it wasn't that obvious back then that this was going to be how it all turned out. But, uh, but now looking back, it, it all kind of makes sense. How did you get your start in the uh, marketing and kind of more conversion TV space? So I, I started on the digital side. Um, so I am uh, an engineer by training and I fairly, uh, fairly early on in my career, I figured out that I was really good at translating different things to different people. So going back to that translation job number one, right? Uh, whether that was technical requirements to business folks or business requirements back to technical folks. And that kind of propelled me into a slew of of high-profile product management roles back in the day when product management wasn't really established as well as a discipline as it is now. Um, (laughs) Jury's still out if it's actually very established today, but at least when you say you are in product management today, there's some recognition of what that might entail versus when I was starting out, there really wasn't that awareness. Uh, so I was always fascinated by both the, the kind of the broadcast ability to reach a, a huge number of people with the same message at the same time, and then the narrow cast ability and what that looks like in a digital scenario. So I got to do a lot of 
cool things very early on, like in the early aughts and the mid aughts, just as digital video was starting to take off. And then later on in my career, as I was in, in more senior roles, more on the, the uh, ad tech, martech, analytics and technology side, I really got the glimpse of, of uh, linear video as well mainly through trying to interpret what viewership means in digital or linear channels and again how to translate one for the other's audience and vice versa so it was one of those things that uh, doesn't feel very intentional like i didn't really set out to be uh, a media exec it kind of happened because that's where my my interests and uh, all the this other stuff that i was working on happened to converge Love it. And you've got an incredible background and you kind of wonder more for our community, if you mind uh, give more background on Spare Advisors and kind of, you know, where they sit in the space today. Sure. So uh, we just turned five this summer, which uh, for a, a fairly young company sounds uh, simultaneously surreal and also too short. <laughs> so we alternate between those two modes on, on any given day. And my, my partner and, and co-founder is uh, my sister, Maya. So we're a family business, family media business. <laughs> And uh, we, we both saw a, a really big gap in the market uh, as we were progressing through our, our own individual operating roles. Um, and, you know, in the, the, which has really proven our thesis over the last five years. And that's that in this media space, we've uh, become very siloed in what we focus on. And so there were very few companies out there, if any, that could really help you piece together the entire picture, whether if you were a brand, you know, where should you be placing your advertising dollars? Where should your attention be going? If you're a buyer, you know, which platforms should you be surfacing and, and working with? If you're a, a seller, how to position yourself? And there really wasn't, a, you know, a someone you could turn to to help you with all of that. And so very selfishly, because we wanted to have that kind of service in earlier roles, we built it. And uh, yeah, that was five years ago. We uh, brand ourselves as a management consultancy and we work with um, everybody in the space on solving big gnarly strategic problems that then also require some type of operational excellence to execute. Yeah, I love it. You know, uh, you're writing and I've gotten to catch you know, several of your talks, uh, you know, especially here in the uh, recent months. I think the you know, but definitely much more high level understanding of, you know, if you're a, a marketer, this is what the networks are thinking, or if you're a network, this is how the consumer uh, is, is moving. I think how all that plays together is, um, you know, obviously a strength. Yeah, I like the, the puzzle metaphor, really. And I think it's, it's incredibly apt here, where, you know, a lot of senior execs, if they've grown up in like a linear background or coming from a completely digital background, they see their part of the puzzle and, and have a very, very clear understanding of what's happening there. But just a few pieces over, they don't really have that anywhere near that level of understanding. And so it's very easy to focus on the wrong things when you're looking at building your product roadmap or hiring a new team or really approaching market. And, and that's really where, where we shine. Uh, as, uh, you know, kind of don't waste your time and energy on efforts that are not going to be commercially successful. Absolutely. And, you know, kind of recent news, uh, you know, as we're recording this, uh, Regal Cinemas announced yesterday that they're going to close down more than 500 theaters uh, across the country. And, you know, not a shock, um, but you've seen, you know, different studios and, and kind of individual releases take a different uh, you know, different tact and you've got the, you know, one blockbuster goes direct to, to home rental. You've got another that goes into the theater with, you know, disappointing results, at least domestically. Um, 
you know, kind of what are your top line thoughts on this and, and really what impact do you think this is going to have on, on video and then entertainment as a whole? Yeah, that, that was, uh, that was probably the kind of the most shocking, but also completely anticipated news that we've gotten in the media ecosystem. I think, you know, it's a really tough time for theater operators. It's a tough time for studios, but it, then none of this should come as a surprise to them. I think the, the pandemic is just accelerating some of the trends in, you know, reduced viewership, at least here in the U S and in Western markets that have been in play for quite a while. And that kind of the, the focal point of the global box office has been shifting slowly towards China. I, I think, you know, I always like to look at it from a perspective of opportunity. Uh, I, I think this is a great time for, for premium VOD because, you know, not only are we actually stuck at home, there's literally nothing else to do but, but sit and, you know, consume media, watch watch uh, exciting films, play, you know, esports or games or whatever. And, but you're definitely on, on your couch in your, in your home. And so, you know, if you're, we're not experimenting with like pay-per-view levels of pricing for premium VOD right now, when do we get the chance to do that again? Uh, I, I think it also exposes the, really the lack of agility in a lot of media and entertainment. When you look at the amount of time that studios had to put in place a much more agile way of promoting movies and you know, not having uh, a very high level budget attached to every title and then going and reacquiring users for every single one of, of the subsequent releases, not having an audience that they could reach out to for you know, movies that they know worked in the past, here's a new one, here's a sequel or similar, but just kind of continuously relying on reacquisition seems like a really outdated way to look at things, but there are very few studios and production houses that have really approached audience level data as an asset, uh, not just for audience acquisition purposes, but also for production decisions. And when you look at the companies that are currently successful, uh, but the Netflixes of the world, but also studios like Blumhouse, the one thing that they've led with is leveraging data and insights and information for optimizing their entire production and release budget. And I think when you look at more, some of the more traditional studios, it's pretty glaring that that's uh, an entirely you know, missing bucket of activities that they can't uh, deploy overnight but uh, if they started working on it right now, they, they could see some results, you know, within uh, a still a still um, a still important time period, like you know, six to twelve months maybe. And uh, so it, it it does seem like it's a, a bit of a reckoning. I, I do think that the shift in uh, consumer behavior is going to stick around. That even after we're out of the woods here, we're not all gonna run back to theaters. And part of it is, is just the, the sheer economics of it. I mean, you know, in, in a major market, you're looking at uh, easily a hundred bucks to take a, a small family out to, to the movies. And that's just between tickets and, you know, a couple of popcorns. And uh, at the same time, we are talking about, well, you know, here's a $30 
PVOD release that you can watch pause for two days, but that seems like it's a, it's too much of an investment because we have this perception that digital content really isn't as valid as like a real experience. So I think as we are seeing this careening <laughs> into a ravine on the theater side and the studio side, we also need to watch very closely how consumers perceive the value of PVOD. We know that there are certain events that command a high ticket item like, you know, pay-per-view sports events. So why wouldn't like Christopher Nolan's Tenant, a, a really hotly anticipated film or the new James Bond, why can't they have a similar level of, of monetization releases is the question that I want to leave in the, in the virtual room. Yeah, it's interesting when you even look at the, the revenue splits, the, you know, the difference between what they, you know, what a theater chain would take versus mm -hmm. what, you know, Disney with Mulan, if you, if you purchase it directly through them, I mean, there's an opportunity to actually make more money with a much lower, you know, top line. Uh, yeah. as as it doesn't all go to Apple or Roku, I guess, but. Exactly. And I think, you know, in the short term, it's really going to benefit uh, companies like Blumhouse, and I'm going to try not to mention them in every sentence. I love everything they've done. <laughs> uh, but but they're really a great case study for this, where they're, they're very smartly optimizing commercially and still delivering uh, the types of movies that audiences go absolutely wild over. And, you know, they have so many cult hits that it, it's just wonderful to see somebody be so methodical about uh, what will work in entertainment. Absolutely. Well, we, we kind of you know, talked about this a little bit. Let's stick with media companies. And, you know, what do you think, um, you know, from their perspective, what are they missing uh, when they look at, you know, AVOD or SVOD or even just more connected TV in general? Uh, that's a, <laughs> a very uh, gnarly question. <laughs> uh, I, I think a lot are, uh, a lot of media companies are caught with, you know, oh, we must do something about this right now and, and are, are not really taking that step back to understand what does AVOD or SVOD or PVOD look like with their particular content and assets. Rather, they're all kind of trying to, to mimic one another. And, you know, we, we see now in consumption patterns that consumers aren't just going to keep subscribing to premium VOD or, S, uh, sorry, SVOD, uh, endlessly. There's room for maybe, you know, three, four uh, max in every household, maybe even less over time, we'll see. And those are going to be occupied by, you know, Netflix, Prime, Hulu, Disney, and that's about it. So if you're not one of those four, maybe HBO makes the cut. Um, so, you know, one of those four or five leading uh, platforms that have a lot of, of uh, awareness already, they have a lot of pool in terms of cultural relevancy, and they have a lot of marketing dollars to continue investing in, in customer acquisition, you have to figure out a different path. And so whether that means, you know, that do the economics work if you have a small but super engaged niche community, like some of the, you know, uh, national uh, uh, offerings, like, for example, for, you know, French speakers, all French content or similar, uh, or a, a particular a vertical of interest. But what we're not really seeing enough of is that kind of, of 
you know, not me too thinking, but hey, here's what where my uniqueness is in the space, and this is why I need to launch this type of service in particular. I, I think the the biggest defender here is probably Quibi um, with their rather you know interesting uh, launch and, and go to market, uh, coupled with an you know, very, very generous marketing budget that seems to have fallen flat. Uh, I, I think that's a really good cautionary tale for newer entrants in the space who are basically going with a, with a me too strategy. So my, my advice would be, you know, take a step back, really evaluate the assets that you have. Maybe you don't have a data strategy. Maybe you don't have a partnership strategy. Maybe you, you don't really have the tech capabilities to do this on your own and, and like start from there and, and then adjust how you're going. You don't have to do something just because CBS Viacom have done it or somebody else has. Yeah, and another thing that we talk about, it's a kind of a constant theme from our community, especially when you look at the more traditional media, whether it be the media companies or the advertisers or the, the networks and the digital, it's kind of there's this disconnect between how these companies want to make money and how the consumer wants to, you know, wants them to make money essentially or consume content. Uh, is this something you agree with and kind of, you know, why? Yeah, I think that disconnect is, is particularly huge and that there are a couple of contributing factors to it. I think uh, a lot of the large media companies with roots in uh, linear television never really had to think through what the future looked like until recently. I mean, we always, they could always rely on a really strong ad supported line of revenue. And up until 2016, when digital became the, 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 the bigger spending uh, category, there's always this, like, you know, this is a juggernaut. It's always kind of going to be there if you're a, a, a traditional linear um, type of, of uh, if, if you have linear assets. Um, I, I think that part of the challenge here goes back to that initial silofication between the linear TV people and the digital TV people, which we've reduced now in the industry, but it, it still persists in, in some media companies. And, and it really is if, you know, if one group is speaking French, the other speak, group is speaking Turkish and they're not quite understanding each other um, very well. So it's very hard to have a cogent uh, strategy moving forward if everyone still maintains their own P&Ls and has their own separate technologies, separate teams. And it just seems like they're kind of yelling over one another. Uh, it's the, the good news, I suppose, is that it's not just limited to media companies. This dichotomy between the TV folks and the you know, new TV folks exists on the buy side as well. It exists within agencies. It exists within brands and, and their awareness of where they should be advertising. So I, <laughs> I, I joke that that's a good thing, but maybe it's not because that just means that there's more silos that, that potentially need to be broken down for us to, to really have a functioning industry. Well, there, I mean, what are your thoughts? Is that a, if the silos kind of came down the buy side that you would see the media companies and, and networks shift? Or is that something that uh, you think a media company could deliver a product that knocked those silos down? 
So this is where I think this is very generational and that it's not necessarily going to be a media company at this stage. I think media companies got us to, to this, um, traditional media companies got us to this phase uh, and, you know, pushed things like TV everywhere, which was a big move in the right direction, but was as executed in a really strange way from a consumer perspective. We track this as, you know, entertainment going D2C and really going direct consumer now so that you don't necessarily need a, a distribution network of some kind. You can just get that from Netflix or from Prime or similar. So I think it's going to be a generational shift where the, you know, the leaders of the media industry are, are now stepping up or have already. Uh, so I, I, what I would like to, to see the most is on the buy side, really, there needs to be a, a change in awareness of where you can uh, make the most of, of like where, where you can find the audience that you need. And I think that as we've seen now, there are a few companies that are saying we're no longer doing upfronts. That step doesn't make sense for us anymore. Large companies with significant budgets and usually when they make that first move, then a lot of smaller companies follows and then it, it, it seems that change happens very quickly. Uh, and, and so it, it is there's a there's a certain layer of intermediaries that needs to collapse rather than silos and individual media owners or buyers uh, kind of collapsing on their own that, that also needs to happen for, for this to work better. Absolutely. And, and most of our focus normally is on the U.S. market, uh, but I'm sure our community would love to hear kind of your thoughts on, you know, how our mar market differs from other countries and regions you know, politics aside, um, are we unique or are these same challenges global? Some of it is a, is a global challenge, but really the bulk of the U.S., the U.S. media market's very different than most other markets. So, for example, the, the cord cutting here might not be such a big uh, issue in other markets where the, you know, proverbial cable TV providers are, are actually much more attuned to what customers in their respective regions want. The interesting thing is, is that a lot of the uh, technology is actually predominantly being developed for the U.S. market, and it's having a, an effect in abroad because you're getting product features and functionality that might not necessarily make sense for your, your native market because of the outsized influence of, of the U.S. market. So I, I'd say it, it's always, <laughs> you always kind of have to uh, introduce that in, in conversation with international folks is that, you know, hey, here in our market, these are the challenges that we're seeing right now with, you know, things like um, a lot of um, opportunity to shift from uh, upfronts to like scatter market or to shift your buys in different ways to like less known, um, but still pretty sizable networks, which, you know, in countries with a smaller population or a less uh, or differently developed media ecosystem might not be an option. So that there's always that to, to uh, reconcile. Uh, but we do tend to like, at least with the technological solutions originating out of the US, we tend to have a very US first and US centric view. Uh, so, so it, it's a little bit of a reckoning when you go and expand into another territory and they're like, well, this doesn't make sense for us. No, thanks. <laughs> That's an interesting point on the, on the cord cutting. Is that, 
do you think the reason it's less of an issue in other places, is it a price thing that we're, you know, our bundles price is going up so fast or is it the offering is more in tune with the kind of change of consumer? It's a mix of both. I think, you know, there are some markets that, that have a very uh, comparable price point to ours, the UK being one of them, but the, the offering seems to be much more, well uh, tuned to uh, uh, consumers' perception of whether or not they need to have a, a, a cable cord. Um, and, you know, in the Middle East in particular, there have been um, these e experiments to have a full, like, digital VOD service earlier on. And, and so th these have been quite successful uh, compared to our own efforts here, which I, I know I've mentioned TV everywhere. I think that was one of the, the big... Uh, the, 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 the really poorly implemented great ideas of, of our media age. Uh, so it, it really varies. I, I think that in a lot of places, you know, cord cutting has always been positioned as primarily a price issue in the U.S. And I think that's somewhat deceptive because to the kind of entertainment going D to C part of the trend I was referencing earlier, it's not so much the price, it's that the offering is no longer a fit for what consumers need. And by that, I really mean linear offering without a clear like sports or, or a live component that's super necessary for you to have and to access. Uh, and the whole shift from hey, here's a bunch of like, pre-programmed content that you can just passively consume to, oh, I want to watch this on you know, Thursday evening. This is exactly what I want to see. And then you know, that's it. it is, is a, it's, it's easy to miss if you're operating with the mind of a programmer, but um, a media programmer, but it, it's, it's easy to kind of see if you're looking at it from a, from a consumer shift perspective. And I think that's what a lot of media companies missed uh, because if, if they hadn't missed that consumer shift, maybe they could have adapted with, with more direct uh, offerings sooner. Definitely. And kind of looking back, uh, you know, more high level, you know, what's the biggest change you've seen in the, in the video ad marketplace? Ooh, uh, that's a, that's a great question. So the, over the last five years since we've we've been Sparrow, um, there have been a lot of you know smaller, pretty impactful changes. We talked a little bit about that shift in ad spend. That's obviously a momentous change, um, and you know a lot of newer things vying for uh, people's attention, but also for wallets. So the media landscape change there. But I, I think the the biggest shift is really one of perception. Uh, so even as recently as five years ago, whenever you talked about digital video, and in particular AVOD and SVOD, you'd, you'd get the, you know, oh, that's cute, but, you know, it's not television kind of feedback. And in, you know, in 2016, when the ad side of, of the, the equation shifted in favor of digital, it became kind of like, oh, well, maybe this digital video is actually, you know, for real. <laughs> and... When you talk to, to peers who've been at this for a longer period of time, you, you can kind of pick up on the frustration immediately, which is like, well, but this is what we've been saying since, you know, the early aughts, some people even earlier than that. And it's just now 
becoming kind of a, a, oh, an acceptable thing in the industry to say that, you know, the future is digital video or, or video, not television. And I, I think that that's what's going to accelerate some of these conversations pretty drastically. I did mention it's also a generational shift. I think a lot of the, the uh, executive tier uh, folks are retiring or close to retirement. Some new leadership is coming in that can really drive uh, a lot of change reasonably quickly. So I'm excited <laughs> about that part. I'm very excited to no longer have to deal with the folks who would very openly say things like, you know, well, you know, I'm a few years away from retirement, so why rock the boat now? <laughs> things like that that I, I still can't believe I've heard with my own ears, but have several times. Yeah, I've heard my youngest kid's already in college. And that is a yeah. reason for something, right? <laughs> That's a popular one, right? <laughs> Yeah. Oh dear. Yeah, it's hard to believe. I mean, I can think back to, you know, big moments like, uh, you know, you got Adobe experience, but like, you know, two mogul being acquired by Adobe. And I thought the yeah. market was so mature at that point. And to hear you say, you know, 2016 was a, a watershed moment it just shows how early that really was. Yeah, I mean, just to, to take you back, so I was a, a, at, a, at a premium video company in the early aughts, the mid aughts, it was maybe 2004, I want to say 2005, uh, we were figuring out how to put video on devices then, this is, you know, when broadband was not still everywhere, pre-smartphones <laughs> uh, and whatnot, and so we were having those conversations then and going into uh, you know, distributors and saying, hey, there's all this like ancillary content that you're now leaving on like your editing room floor that can be really compelling as like digital shorts and these behind the scenes things and, and like all this cool stuff. And they were literally looking at us like aliens, like, what, what are you talking about? Like, why would anybody want to watch that? That was not that long ago. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, what do you, you, know, you might have already answered this, but Kind of what's one development that you're most excited about looking forward? Ooh. Um, I, I don't know that there's really one. I, I think I'm, I'm finally seeing the glimpses of this media ecosystem that I hoped would already be here. But uh, in the spirit of, of picking one, I think it's, uh, it, it has to be PVOD. I feel like we're so close to, to nailing that as an experience for premium. And, and I see so much opportunity for uh, content owners to reimagine how releasing content could look like now. Like, you know, when you look at what e-commerce, successful e-commerce companies are doing with timed drops and even Nike, you know, selling out a really expensive shoe in a matter of minutes because they know how to talk to their audience and how to prime it. Like I, I envision a similar kind of release schedule for uh, really like really high budget films. Like maybe, you know, what, what, how, if you're a super fan of Christopher Nolan's, for example, how much is it worth to you to be among the first, 10,000 or 100,000 people in the world to see his next film. And so there's so much that we could do here that's now actually technically possible that wasn't possible just a few years ago. If we can just imagine what content could, like if, if we had no constraints, legacy constraints, no movie theaters, none of that, like what would be the most impactful way of releasing content today? 
and this is a, a, a an exercise I like to take my product theme, teams through works with with a, a lot of our clients as well is you know if you were building your business from scratch today how different would it look like what would your tech stack look like what how would you take it to market and if you look at things like that with fresh eyes you come up with a very very different scenario than you know well we're going to have movie theaters and malls <laughs> there's going to be a lot of popcorn you know, on the, on the chairs, <laughs> on the, the pathways and whatnot. And this is going to be a really great experience for everyone involved. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not a good experience anymore. Yeah, so yeah PVOD, let's do it. <laughs> All right, write it down here. I will right, we'll get, get you out of here with uh, one more question. Um, kind of given the current environment, if you could get your entire team to read one book, what would that book be and why? Ooh, well, you know, we're, we're talking about, video. So let's, let's pivot that away from books for a second into video. <laughs> and so there is actually one show that I cannot stop talking about because it, it is just perfect on so many levels and it's Cobra Kai. And if you haven't seen it, it, it is, it, it's just, uh, I don't know, like 20 out of 10 <laughs> on scores. So Cobra Kai was a show that YouTube, um, uh, their, their premium channel, I think it was YouTube Red, I want to say, or maybe it was called something else. Uh, they initially developed it, and it's based on uh, Karate Kid, the, the, the characters from Karate Kid. Original cast is still here, but completely reimagined, and it does so many things so well for this media landscape right now. It works with you know, uh, mobilizing nostalgia, it is uh, a really good story. <laughs> you get attached very quickly. It's bingeable. And it's really gone from uh, an okay success when it was in YouTube land. Uh, now that Netflix has taken it over, it's, it's turned into a global phenomenon. So it also speaks to that need to have the right content on the right platform for it to be really, really impactful. So that's my, my recommendation uh, there's two seasons. The third season is coming in January and a fourth one has been greenlit already. It, it's really, really good fun. And if you don't want to watch something, if you want to read something, I think a lot, because this space evolves at the pace it evolves, it's very easy to forget kind of what came before. And it's also very easy to forget some of the very impactful decisions, whether legislative or otherwise, that have really driven the consolidation of the media space and, and led to where we are today. So I actually have two book recommendations by the same author. It's Tim Wu, and he's written The Master Switch and Attention Merchants. And that's the order that I would read the books in. So The, the Master Switch is about the kind of the early telco boom days. Uh, that led to the current uh, media landscape, the cable cable media landscape, let's say, and then attention merchants kind of picks up there and really looks at how we've we've what we've done with attention since on the digital uh, in in the digital realm. But Cobra Kai is more fun. <laughs> All right. Well, I got to ask follow up then on that. So I had a, this debate with someone the other day. Do you mm -hmm. think obviously I outstanding show quality wise, but do you think Netflix makes hits because of its homepage and the power or are these shows hits because they're great shows? 
I think it's because they're great shows, but also because they really know which audience that they're going to appeal to. So with something like Cobra Kai, that's a more mass market show. They also have really niche shows that are very, very successful and, and you know, they require cult followings. And the messaging there is, is quite, uh, quite different. So I think you would use the power of the Netflix homepage uh, and it's more applicable to something that is a, um, that has more mainstream potential versus something that's more niche, you would uh, market it differently. And I think that's going to be another uh, interesting realm for content creators to, to try to figure out is, is how can they promote their content through ancillary ways, whether it's by mobilizing communities, by paying for advertising themselves on Facebook or similar, so that they can kind of build towards then gaming's the wrong word, but utilizing the Netflix recommendation algorithm in their favor too. This isn't limited just to Netflix. It's, you know, every platform that has some type of surfacing um, algorithm, but I, I see this as an emerging area for uh, audience acquisition experts that reside with uh, studios or distributors. I'm assuming there are such people. <laughs> Lana, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I know our, our community is going to love the conversation. So, you know, thank you very much for your time. Wonderful. Thank you. This is so fun. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Screen Bites. I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. You can find out more about CrossGreen Media at crossgreenmedia.com. And please don't forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter, Stay to the Screens. You can find us on social media at CrossGreen Media. Join us next time for more insights and analysis straight from the experts.